0: Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. I'd like to welcome you back to part two of my talk with Brian Erb. If you haven't listened yet to last week's episode, I strongly suggest you do so because some of what we talk about this week directly follows that conversation. Now moving on from the discussion of health risks versus benefits of male infant circumcision, this week we turn towards the social elephant in the room, namely the gender debate on circumcision, as well as more emotional issues such as the defensiveness of parents and the struggles for some men to feel heard on the issue. I hope this conversation may also provide a means for families or individuals struggling to find a way to open up and feel heard. It's up to all of us to listen when people share their story. So without further ado, let's get started. I am very excited to have back with me today, Brian Earp. If you did not listen last week, I would please urge you to do so first, or at least as well as listening to today. But for those of you that don't know, Brian is an American bioethicist, philosopher, and interdisciplinary researcher. He's currently the associate director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University in the Hastings Center as well as a research fellow at the Oxford hero Center for Practical Ethics. Brian, thank you for coming back to try to finish this conversation that I'm not even certain we'll even get to finish, will we?
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. Yeah. A lot of issues are raised. Who knows what we'll get through today, but we'll do our best.
0: Exactly. All right. So, You know, last week, we talked a lot about the health implications with uh, the benefits, the risk questions as it pertained to male circumcision. And there was one issue that I kind of had separated out in my mind last week, but I think really is relevant to that benefit-risk ratio. And that's the issue of pain. Maybe it's just me, but I feel that pain in and of itself should be considered a risk, particularly when we're talking about it with neonates. Is it ever considered part of the risks for the procedure, I mean, in the, in the literature?
1: I think it is counted as a negative uh, aspect of circumcision. The risk, if you want to interpret that as how likely is pain to occur, it's going to occur to some extent. Then the question is just how much and when and at what part of the operation or the recovery period. So let me spell some of those things out. First of all, until the 1980s or the late 1980s, the common view within medicine was that neonates didn't feel pain and there are various reasons for this partly because neonates don't express their experiences of pain in exactly the same way as adults do so in order to make these kinds of inferences you have to collect a lot of data like cortisol levels and you have to look at brain activity and they just weren't doing those studies and they also had a kind of mythology which is they thought well if the baby's going to get through the birth canal that itself would be pretty painful so maybe it's built up some some way of not feeling pain until later later on but anyway, it's now it's now the consensus among pain experts that infants, if anything, experience pain by all the measures that you can do to infer pain in anyone at least as acutely as adults do and perhaps more acutely because they haven't yet had this trimming of their um, neural pain uh, receptors where basically th- there's this kind of spreading pain sensation that hasn't hasn't got um, finely tuned yet because they're still developing those um, those settings of of how they interpret pain so Okay, and then in terms of, of what's going on during the surgery, some physicians uh, still don't use really any anesthesia, they, especially older physicians. The younger physicians typically will. But the older physicians who were raised back in the day where they thought that ba- babies didn't feel pain, their view is often, well, listen, it's kind of a hassle. I've got a bunch of these to do in a day. Sometimes they're kind of lining them up in a conveyor belt fashion because they go through and they, they try to get it all done efficiently. And so they they figure, you know, yeah, it'll be very painful for the baby, but it, it you know won't last that long. And it, and if I have to do all the business of putting in a nerve block and trying to do all this stuff, that'll just extend the procedure. So let's just get this done quickly. Um, also in a ritual setting, traditionally, like in a Jewish bris, for example, the baby will get a like a ceremonial drop of wine on their tongue or something like that. But it, there's effectively no pain control if it's done in the traditional way. So some babies are experiencing the full pain all the time, all the way through. And we have every reason to think that it's um, extremely painful. So cortisol levels spike to the level of like, you know, torture. I mean, it's it's really very painful if you don't have anesthetic. Then let's suppose that you're in the subset of cases where anesthetic is used. Well, there's different ways of doing this. The most effective form is something called a dorsal penile nerve block, where you have to inject a needle into the base of the the penis and administer this um, anesthetic. The needle itself is painful. Then it takes uh, some time for the, the anesthetic to set in, and some doctors don't wait the full time, so they kind of start the operation while the anesthetic is still setting in, and so that can be very painful. Also, the anesthetic uh, has a failure rate. It's not always effective, so some subset of uh, babies who even have this anesthetic will still feel the full uh, experience of pain. Other doctors use less effective pain control. They use a topical thing like a, what's called an Emla cream. It's kind of like lidocaine. Um, and that's, that's not as effective pain still occurs. And then the final thing is there's the whole healing period. So once the surgery is over and there's no such thing as a pain-free circumcision, there's going to be some amount of pain in that, then the, the baby's got a wound now that's going to be in, in a diaper for you know some weeks while it's healing. And so they'll have urine and feces that are affecting the wound. And also they can't always just ask for more Tylenol or paracetamol or whatever, you, you have to infer that they're in pain. And so they may be experiencing pain, and you're not administering the right kind of medicines to them. One more final thing here is that there's some preliminary evidence that early exposure to paracetamol is linked to neurodevelopmental problems. And so you should really be avoiding painful experiences in children because you don't want to be, have to give them drugs. <laughs> but if you don't give them drugs, then you just have the effects of the pain. And pain itself is bad for the neurodevelopmental, uh, children. And so there's some evidence, for example, that early painful experiences can have implications, you know, months or years later for the pain thresholds that infants have. So this is a big issue. Um, It's hard to study pain in infants, but fortunately there's some scientists who have really made their careers focusing on this. And um, the the consensus is that all unnecessary painful experiences in infancy should be avoided um, because of the potential adverse consequences for neurodevelopment. And ironically, even the American Academy of Pediatrics, panel on pain control makes this recommendation. They say, you should avoid all medically unnecessary surgeries in infancy. But then their separate panel over on circumcision says, well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe there's some benefits, maybe there's some risks, but it's probably okay. It's a parental choice. And it's like, y'all should talk to each other. Like, <laughs> this is definitely medically unnecessary. You're, you know, it's, and it, again, it's not like um, you're administering a vaccine or something where you have a pinprick for a few moments. It's like a surgery. It's a tissue yeah. removing surgery. So it's very painful.
0: I want to make clear for people listening, when we talk about the experience of pain, most of the research on this is done on NICU babies because they do have to experience medically necessary painful experiences. And so we actually have a wealth of research looking at these long term outcomes and the exposure to pain. And of course, like all things, there's no guarantee. It's not saying if you're exposed to pain, X, Y, Z will happen. You will have a neurodevelopmental disorder or struggle or difference, but that the risk is much, much higher than in a general population or even in a child that doesn't have to undergo such procedures. And it's, you know, you said up till the 80s, it wasn't, but I'm just thinking back, I thought it was 96 was the paper that came out looking at comparing pain relief in Canada during male circumcision, which found, I want to mention it because At that time, it was common not to use anything. And they had to stop that branch of the study that examined the nothing because the measures of cortisol, heart rate reactivity, et cetera, of stress found that these babies were under intense stress for, but one of the things that I always hear. So we know from a physiological perspective, it's stressful. One of the things I hear parents say, or doctors try to say, oh, they just fell asleep. They're fine. They just, they just that's it. They, it didn't bother them at all. They just went to sleep. Um, what what do you say in response to that when people really have that view?
1: Yeah. So that's basically not possible. You can't fall asleep during an extremely painful experience. And so what some scholars have suggested, this is a contested area of the literature, but that people need to know that in a circumcision, the baby's limbs are restrained. So they, they're strapped into something called a circumstraint. So their arms and legs are tied down. So they're struggling mightily, but it's evident to them that they can't escape their situation. And so what some people think that happens is the baby basically goes into a state of withdrawal. Like they just go into kind of a neurogenic shock. And they they, you know, you just have to imagine that you're, you know, you don't have pain control, or at least adequate pain control. Somebody's operating on your genitals, your limbs are tied down, and you can't escape. Well, what are you gonna do? I mean, you might struggle for a while, but at some point you just kind of go limp and you just wait for the thing to finish. And so what looks like sleep may be the child basically being so overwhelmed by not being able to escape the situation that they kind of shut down.
0: Yeah. And that is so important to, to remember because I think this idea that it is... And I also think parents get babies back after it happens a lot in the US. So they aren't necessarily there for the procedure. And so that shutting down afterwards is also likely happening. A child that needs to just is finally returned there may be a sense of relief at being back in contact with a parent that we know regulates their autonomic nervous system and you're just seeing kind of the reaction after the fact as opposed to it was actually fine the whole time it happened right most parents don't
1: actually see the full circumcision i mean even in in a religious ceremony if the baby comes out and then the ritual circumciser does the operation the baby will will have been prepared prior to coming out where they do the first bit of the surgery where they detach the foreskin from the head of the glands. And so the baby may already be in shock by the time the baby comes out and everybody is watching and they go, oh, well, the baby doesn't seem that disturbed. So I think there's kind of a, an illusion that can promulgate in the community where if you've gone to a number of brisses, I mean, sometimes people see that the baby is very uncomfortable. And so mm-hmm. you have reports of mothers saying, "Oh my gosh, it was just like really traumatic for me to to actually go to the the bris. But other times people say, "Well, it's 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 no big deal. The baby the baby just is uh, very calm." And in those sorts of cases, they have to re- realize that part of the preparation for the the rest of the, you know, the final cut has already been done kind of off stage.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, moving on, this is the the topic that really comes up a lot and I know gets people angry and upset which is the gendered nature of this debate because we do live in a culture where female circumcision we don't even call it that we call it female genital mutilation regardless of what is happening um is something we rightfully very very rightfully speak out against is illegal in the united states and all forms are illegal and yet as you've written about really eloquently and a lot, there's some ethical questions here about why we're treating these two things so very differently. Can you speak to that? Like, first off, why should we treat them the same? Which, I mean, I know the answer, but just for anyone <laughs> listening, why should we treat them the same? And what, you know, there may need to be a bit of a clarification about the forms of female circumcision that occur. Cause I think everyone always thinks of one particular form, which is Highly invasive, often done to exert some sexual control over women at a very young age. but what that's not it, is it? There's far more.
1: Yeah, I was just giving a uh, sitting on a panel with a colleague in Malaysia, and uh, this this colleague has been active in trying to encourage parents not to undertake what they call female circumcision in Malaysia. I mean, they use a different term, but that's how it translates into English. And what's fascinating about the case of Malaysia, it's also true in Indonesia, parts of Sri Lanka, some parts of India, is that the form of female circumcision that's done in typically Muslim communities is far less invasive than the male circumcision that's done to their brothers in the same families. And so it's actually been hard to take the the Western FGM or female genital mutilation discourse and kind of go over to Malaysia and wag their fingers at these families and say you shouldn't circumcise their daughters because the families say, well, first of all, you don't seem to mind that we circumcise our sons and what we do to our daughters is far less invasive than what we do to our sons. So what exactly is the problem here? Are you having a principled critique of our practices or are you just upset about the the kind of circumcision we do isn't culturally familiar to you? And so they're rightly raising concerns about cultural hypocrisy and moral double standards because basically what's done in Malaysia is a prick to the clitoral hood to draw a drop of blood, which is seen as symbolically purifying, and there's various reasons why this practice took this form, and there's um, secondary scriptures within Islam that some communities think justify the practice. And so what's interesting here is that when you think about the symbolic meanings of genital cutting, any community that practices child genital cutting obviously thinks that it's a good thing. They think that they're benefiting the child in some way. So just as an example, in in rabbinical Judaism, circumcision of boys is seen as the most important rite of the religion and something that actually symbolically seals a divine covenant and the ironic thing here is that only boys are seen as entitled to undergo this you know metaphysically transformative ritual whereas there is no equivalent ritual for girls and some jewish scholars have argued that because of the patriarchal tradition within judaism it was never a question that girls would have a circumcision right because they weren't seen as having the same status as the boys and so what some people suggest is in some sects of Islam they believe that Muhammad's innovation over the traditional Judaic Abrahamic covenant was to include girls in circumcision and make it a gender equal right, where the girls are seen as also being entitled to have a ritual that's that's important and that in, you know initiates them into the community on the same footing as boys. So it's ironic about this case is that people have this idea that female genital cutting is all about destroying the sexuality of girls or so forth, and part of the reason for this. it's it's not an accident that they think that. They think that because of a very concerted political effort among those who oppose all forms of female genital cutting, but ironically, not any form of male genital cutting, to get us to think of what they do in other cultures as very barbaric, whereas what we do in our culture is civilized. And so one way you do this is you intentionally focus on the most extreme and severe and symbolically problematic forms of female genital cutting. You label them mutilation, and then you label all the variants that are not the same as the prototype that you've created in people's mind, you label those mutilation too, and you try to create these separate categories in your head. Now, these categories don't reflect any situation that actually occurs anywhere in the world. These are theoretical categories. So when you hear female genital mutilation, you're not hearing what like anthropologists actually study in different cultures where they look at a very wide range of practices. The World Health Organization like typology of, of FGM refers to like a dozen or more different procedures, and it just calls them all the same thing. But, you know, this is like, anyone who knows anything about labeling theory knows how this works. If you collapse a bunch of distinctions and you call everything by the worst sounding name you can think of, then you encourage people to come up with a stereotype in their mind that causes them to have a blanket judgment toward the practices of other groups so that it can make them feel good about their own practices, which this labeling thing was specifically done to distinguish female circumcision from male circumcision. I mean, up until like the 90s, the WHO called it female circumcision because that's what it's called in the local communities. Local communities see these things as equivalent. But then the World Health Organization said, well, shoot, if people think that these are similar to male circumcision, which we don't have a problem with because that's something that many of us literally in the World Health Organization practice in our own families, uh, then they might be critical of male circumcision, which we don't want because we're not human rights abusers. It's only those brown people in other countries who are human rights abusers. And so, I mean, there's sociological research on this. Charlie Carpenter has done research at the World Health Organization and the United Nations and the other human rights gatekeepers and her work shows that it's prevalent within the human rights community to practice male circumcision in their own families. And so when when she confronts them and says, you know, listen, you say that female circumcision involving a prick to the clitoral hood is a human rights violation and a form of gender based violence. But, you know, those communities actually circumcise their sons and their daughters on equal footing, whereas you only circumcise your sons. And what you do is more severe than what they do. So aren't you a human rights abuser? And the human rights gatekeepers like, no, we're not human rights abusers. And it's like, who gets to decide? Like, who's in charge here? I mean, it's, it's like yeah. the hypocrisy is so extreme. So anyway, I know people in some of the communities who practice so-called minor forms of female circumcision, and I provide moral reasons to them why I think they shouldn't circumcise either their daughters or their sons. But the thing is, they at least respect me because they know that I'm not treating them with a different standard to how I treat. You know, Midwestern U.S. parents who circumcise their sons and don't even have a religious reason for doing it. You know, they do it because out of a cultural habit or whatever. My thing is, I think people should be treated equally. And I think we also have to have an honest conversation. If, if you're opposed to all forms of un- medically unnecessary female genital cutting, which I am and which the World Health Organization purports to be, you have to ask yourself, why do you think it's wrong? Now, if you think it's wrong because you have this idea that it destroys the capacity for the girl to ever have an orgasm, then you have to actually be okay with like the vast majority of forms of female genital cutting because they don't have that effect. I mean, this is another myth that's been created. There's this idea that FGM necessarily, for example, affects the, the clitoris, but the clitoris is mostly inside the body there's a very small portion of the clitoris that protrudes outside and even in the forms that affect the clitoris some of them affect only the clitoral hood or the prepuce which is like the female foreskin mm-hmm. some forms don't affect any part of the clitoris they affect just the labia which by the way in the west we call labiaplasty and we perform that happily uh, even on teenage girls so basically there's just there's no there's no consistent explanation for why all the things that non-western brown people do to their girls are categorically human rights violations The things they do to their sons in the same communities are not human rights violations even if they're more severe and then what we do in the west is definitely not human rights violation because we get to decide what a human rights violation is so i i think that the thing is wrong because you're concentrating risk on a part of the body that a person quite rationally would not want to have any sharp object brought to that part of their body unless they accept trade-offs so the thing is like if i'm gonna do a needle prick to your clitoral hood and you're an infant it's not like that's a zero risk procedure. I mean, the right. implement can slip. There might be an infection. It might be that I actually do cause nerve damage that affects you the rest of your life. And you might grow up to not necessarily identify with your community's religious beliefs. And then, you're th- then you reflect on this. And, you know, many many women in these communities do say this. They say, you know, I grew up, I read, I read about what exactly this so-called female circumcision is. I realized that that happened to me when I was younger. Some of them are seven or eight years old, so they really do remember it. And it was really unpleasant and it hurt. And I don't like that that was done to me because I don't accept that risk as something that's worth this supposed religious benefit. I would prefer to just practice my, you know, religious beliefs or be a part of my community without having any sharp objects taken toward my genitals. Thank you very much. And so people want to try to minimize and trivialize even the ritual nicking as it's called. And I don't do that either. I think it is a serious concern, but the point is it's, it's not, it's certainly not more of a concern than male circumcision in terms of physical invasiveness, because it's not even close. I mean, male circumcision removes like a third of the skin system of the penis. And this involves a drop of blood. So if the World Health Organization wants to say that that's a human rights violation, it has got to get its house in order and make up its mind about what it thinks is the basis of the rights violation. And for me, it's the non-consensual interference with a a person's private sexual anatomy when there's no relevant medical emergency to to justify that. And if that's true, then all medically unnecessary genital cutting of non-consenting persons should be seen as a problem, not just the ones that are culturally unfamiliar to the gatekeepers of the United Nations.
0: It's amazing to me. It comes back to what we talked about last week with the intersection with race and racism, which really seems to come through in spades in this debate. There's, I mean, obviously the sexism that I had honestly never even realized because I'm not a scholar on anything religious. I tend to stay out of religious discussion because my knowledge is, you know, that big. I had no idea that it was Muhammad supposedly opening it up in a more gendered, Neutral or or equality basis to bring that in, which adds a layer of patriarchy to it all. That is, my brain is processing right now, but <laughs>
1: about that is that you know nobody knows for sure the, the symbolic meanings of genital cutting change over time, and it's part of the stories that cultures tell to themselves about why they do things. I mean, even in the United States we've have a, we've had a changing narrative because when circumcision started here, it was seen as obvious that it had a dulling effect on sexual sensitivity. And that was seen as a positive thing because of course you're gonna um, discourage children from masturbating, which was morally bad and medically bad. That was the thought at the time. And then in the 1960s, the sexual revolution happens and people think, oh, well, maybe sexual pleasure isn't so bad. And suddenly you see all those excuses dropping out of the medical literature. Now they say, oh, no, it's not sexually harmful. It's actually somehow sexually neutral or positive. And it's like, it's just part of the narrative that that the culture tells itself. So in Islam, you know, different sects have different reasons as to why they say they do it. Sometimes they'll say it is to quiet the sexual impulses of the girl or to encourage her to be sexually modest and so forth. And, you know, I've written articles suggesting that there shouldn't be an asymmetrical concern for female chastity and virginity. But of course, lots of cultures have an idea that sexual modesty or sexual restraint is a virtue that just like unfettered pleasure isn't necessarily the only value and in societies that happen to practice genital cutting these two ideas sometimes become symbolically linked but if you want to say like is female genital cutting for controlling in some sort of negative way the sexuality of girls, you have to first ask yourself, well, what's the expectation for boys in that culture? Because often the boys will also be expected to practice sexual modesty. And second of all, what's the relationship between cultures? So pretty much every culture in the world could be described as patriarchal to some extent, especially if that means like men have greater power in the political sphere. And the thing is that most of those cultures don't practice any form of genital cutting, or they practice only male genital cutting. So there's no societies that only practice female genital cutting that have asymmetrical gender norms with respect to sexuality or that are especially oppressive toward women i mean in saudi arabia for example people might have an idea that there's highly unequal gender expectations and they think of women as being particularly oppressed and they don't practice female circumcision in some societies like among the Kono of sierra leone they have some view they have a sort of gender complementarity social ontology and both the boys and the girls are expected to show courage in going through an initiation rites and proving that they deserve to be called adults. And so in some ways they have a less uh, kind of um, stereotypical view that boys and girls are different than we have in the West where we think girls are delicate flowers and boys are tough and strong and we have these kind of stereotypes. So people who don't study this have this blanket view of what they think is going on in Africa which is these barbaric parents mutilating their daughters. They don't realize that they're also cutting their sons, sometimes more severely because they've been fed a narrative. And the narrative is very comforting to help us not have to reflect on our own practices. And it's, you know, this is like the history of intercultural critique is it's much easier to get upset about what some other culture does. But if you're going to critique another culture, first, you got to critique your own culture. And when you've got all your moral problems taken care of, then sure, you can go ahead and have a conversation with whatever's happening in Egypt or, or whatever you're suddenly concerned about.
0: One other bit of this gender discussion kind of comes up in a Western context that I find is as a female, Who's tried to talk about male circumcision? The number of times I get told, well, no, you can't because you're not a guy. You don't mm-hmm. get to have it. It's only a male discussion, or women that say, no, I leave it up to my husband because how can I speak to it? Because right. I don't have a penis. I don't have a foreskin. As a parent, I find that just bizarre because anytime there's something that involves my children and their well-being and their human rights, I feel like I have a say. I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there that it seems like I should. But right. where did that gender, is that just part of our culture? Or do we see that cross-culturally where these decisions about circumcision, male or female, seem to run along sex lines?
1: I think it's. it might be part of just the difficulty in having certain conversations. So let's say that the thought comes up. I mean, sometimes it doesn't come up until after you've had the kid and then the nurse comes up and says, hey, are we gonna go ahead and do a circumcision? And you're like, uh, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it. But suppose that you have thought about it and you're trying to decide what you're gonna do. Y- you might think, well, if I, if I raise some questions here and say my husband's been circumcised, if I say, wait, are we sure we should do this? Like, I don't know, I'm not so sure it's a good idea. Do we need to do a genital surgery on our son? Well, now I'm going to be raising some stuff that might be an issue with my husband because he's going to have to reflect on, well, wait a minute, what happened to me? Are you saying it's not necessary, but I'm missing part of my penis. And I thought that was for good reasons. So, you know, all of a sudden now you're, you're forcing somebody to reflect on what happened to them. And a lot of people don't want to have that conversation. So I think sometimes well-meaning spouses think let's, I don't know, I'm not going to get into this too much because it's going to raise some uncomfortable stuff for my husband that maybe he doesn't want to face. I'm just going to let him make the decision and kind of wash my hands of this. And, and, and I think it's not, it's it's partly to avoid a, an uncomfortable conversation with the husband because a lot of men don't particularly want to reflect on this. They just want to say, it's fine. I'm fine. Everything happens fine. And because it's fine, we're going to do it to our son because then I don't have to think about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Which kind of brings me to the next kind of topic to to discuss, which is this idea of parental guilt. And we're going to get to grief too for men of not wanting to talk about it. But the parent guilt, we kind of talked about it last time and how things perpetuate. Because again, we don't want to think about it. We don't want to have difficult conversations. If we did it, we have to kind of own it that if we accept it it might not have been right. And I have seen many people with that exact statement. They just, nope, my kid's fine. There were no problems. It's all good. That was, you know, the way it was and everything's okay. But I have had some families that I've witnessed, they had shifted their perspective over time on what had happened. And the guilt that they felt upon realizing that they would have done differently, thinking about the conversations they have to have with their sons about why they did what they did and why it was wrong and to go, it was, I mean, it's intense. There is such a degree of guilt and there's no support for them through it because they try to bring it up, and in a culture where it's still common, you almost get, oh, I don't know what your problem is. They're fine. They're just going to be like everyone else. Why are you even worried about it? But mm-hmm. this resistance, how do we break through that with parents? And like it's First with parents, and then we have to get to the actual kids. But, I mean, it almost, I feel like that process could be easier for kids if you have parents that may acknowledge what happened um, mm-hmm. as not being ideal, but how do we get there with parents? How do we get them to see that something that was done to them or something they may have done was a human rights violation?
1: Yeah, I've I've been about this in the context of, of female genital cutting. And one thing I try to say is we we should separate our moral arguments from stigmatizing people who've who've already undergone a change to their bodies. So what happens is, you know, many immigrants from say Somalia or Sierra Leone or wherever will come to a Western country. And I'm speaking just of the women here, um, where they were raised to feel that what happened to their bodies was an enhancement, that it made them dignified and respectable within their culture. And also they uh, are likely to have felt that modified genitalia are aesthetically more beautiful too. It's sexually desirable and same thing, circumcised men are, you know, Presume that their um, modified genitalia are more desirable to their female partners, and so many many people will will feel that they're they're okay. They like their bodies, and then they come to you know Sweden or wherever. And, and they hear that they've been mutilated. That's the term that's used, not just in the advocacy literature, but by doctors and in the World Health Organization policies and stuff like that. And there's this, like, they, they're also, it's implied to them that they don't have a clitoris because everybody thinks that what FGM is, is removal of the clitoris. And they don't realize that, no, I mean, even if you had a clitoral, you know, clitoris affecting procedure, most of the clitoris is intact. It's underneath the body and they may still be able to have orgasms and so forth. They're misled to believe that they're sexually disabled. And as a consequence, there's sexual relationships going forward. Many of them are just beginning to learn to explore themselves sexually for the first time after immigrating. They basically are devastated and they come to feel that they're damaged goods. They come to feel that no one will ever love them. They come to feel that they'll never be able to please a sexual partner. And and this is really a, a harm of the discourse. Not This is like above and beyond any potential harms of the actual surgery. So my argument is, let's not be using this kind of degrading language toward people and telling them that they've been mutilated like let them decide how they feel about their bodies they mm-hmm. it's you know it they, we can say listen we want to help you have whatever is the best sexual experience you can have you know with whatever remaining tissues you have like let's figure out how you can feel comfortable in your body and then let's figure out why we have a problem with the genital cutting and if we think it's only wrong because it destroys a person's life then we have to go ahead with the stigmatizing thing if we think it's wrong because it should have been the person's choice then we can bracket some of these issues about exactly how much harm is done in any particular case and we can talk about it more in terms of rights like you've suggested. And so I think the thing is when when talking to these parents, many of them will say, listen, I accept your argument that I shouldn't do this to my daughter or perhaps even I shouldn't do this to my son. You know, I know some women from a Muslim culture who now argue against both male and female circumcision, although they grew up uh, having both of those done in their families. And, and they'll say, I accept your moral arguments that I shouldn't be cutting the genitals of my children, but please stop degrading my body and telling me that I'm damaged goods and I'll never enjoy sex and I'm stigmatized. And by the way, you're wrong. I do enjoy sex. Like, what are you even talking about? I don't even take you seriously, World Health Organization, because you're promulgating false claims. So I think we need to step separate these things. I think if you can say majority of men in the in the United States have been circumcised, and if you go around and saying circumcision destroys your sex life, some men will be very sensitive to that and they'll 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 change the view. Most of them will say like fuck you, you know, like <laughs> what are you talking about? Like I enjoy sex. Like get off my back. Exactly. And so they're they're not they're not going to even be open to your arguments. But if you say, listen, you can still enjoy sex with a circumcised penis. I'm not trying to degrade your your experience. I'm just trying to say this should be your child's choice. And so Mm -hmm. if you can get those things uh, separated from each other, I think you can maybe get some inroads.
0: I think that language argument is a huge one because obviously, yes, the way we talk about things has a massive impact on the way we perceive them and the way we engage with them. And I always find it hard to balance this issue of a person being able to talk about their own experience in a certain way without Mm -hmm. it having to necessarily imply others have the same. So I think about some men that do come out and say I was mutilated, yeah. and the reaction by others can be extreme. In the no, you weren't mutilated. Same thing happened to me. That's not mutilation. Da And they go off on their view of it without being able to accept that no, that's that's that person's experience of that situation it's not so
1: true that the same thing happened to them i think what people don't realize is that circumcision is actually pretty variable in terms of what exactly is removed and how much tissue is removed because when you're doing a circumcision on a baby it's a very small organ Mm -hmm. and there's no clear line where the foreskin ends and the rest of the penis begins so you're always making a guess and sometimes what happens is too much tissue is removed so somebody may have a circumcision where you know because of their particular anatomy or their particular their particular um, course of development they might actually have a more severe outcome than yeah. somebody else so it isn't the same it's circumcision is not something that you can actually standardize very well it's yeah. always an, an individualized thing and it's it's a guess that's made about where to cut and so everybody's circumcision is different in a way and so if somebody says actually i have painful erections and somebody else says well i don't it's like, well, maybe you have more skin than I have. I don't know. Like something else yeah. happened to you that happened to me. But don't don't generalize from your case to every other person who's been circumcised. You know, I know a, a number of men have reached out to me because of my work who've had seriously dramatically botched circumcisions and have never been able to have a sexual partner. So, you know, maybe, maybe they're right to be able to say I feel mutilated and that doesn't necessarily apply to the next guy.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what makes it so hard, though, is that I mean, and I see it in the parenting literature. It's almost this is a microcosm of it. The moment you talk about your situation or choice or anything, it's like it's manifesting judgment on everyone who may have chosen differently or not had the ability to do what you did. There is absolutely a lack of individual a role for an individual experience to be acknowledged with it and in turn I think that hinders the ability to talk about it in terms of a rights issue because if the argument is you have to feel like you are mutilated to view it as a human rights issue that's a problem because not many people are going to feel that way does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the the example that I've tried to use, and maybe we even talked about this last time, is the example of labiaplasty that's done for cosmetic reasons among women in yeah. Western countries. So the thing is, if I go to a surgeon as an adult-informed person, and maybe I've been swayed by problematic norms that are trying to make me feel uncomfortable with my unmodified genitalia, that's likely to be true. I mean, plastic surgeons... Make money off of making women feel insecure about their bodies. So that's certainly a consideration. It's not like a free choice that's totally uninformed by these these problematic um, forces. But nevertheless, let's say that all things considered, you just I don't know. You think it would look better. You feel more comfortable in your body, whatever. If you go to the surgeon and they perform a you know pretty invasive surgery. I mean, labiaplasty is not without risk, and in depending on the size of your labia, maybe removing quite a lot of tissue. You're not going to think of yourself as mutilated. You'll think of yourself as enhanced because you've changed your body in a way that promotes your um, sense of, of um, bodily integrity and what you think would be good for you. But if somebody came and just performed a labiaplasty on you without your consent and you rather liked your labia because they're sexually sensitive and they can be played with and they're, you know, they maybe think they look nice and, you know, if somebody goes ahead and they cuts off all that tissue from your body, you're right to say, whoa, you've mutilated me. Like mm-hmm. you changed my body in a way I didn't want. And so the issue is if you imagine performing a labiaplasty on an infant girl, how do you know that's something she would have wanted or not? Yeah. So she, she may grow up to say, I feel mutilated. Or depending, I mean, if this ha- is very prevalent in the culture, she may grow up to say, well, I don't know. I guess it's fine because that's what happened to everybody else. But you don't know how the person's going to feel about their body. This is the other thing too. Is just like you say, people want there to be one rule that applies to everybody. Where either everybody's mutilated or everybody's enhanced. And, you know, we just have to have one thing here. And it's like, the point is it should be the person's choice. Because yeah. it's actually highly individual how people feel about their bodies. It's individual how people's bodies are. Like some people have more or less sensitive genitals. Some people need all the tissue they can get. Some people are, you know, happy to have changes to their bodies and they're willing to tolerate the risk, but you don't know any of that stuff when the person's a baby. And so it's, it's not about everybody having the same experience. It's about everybody having the choice to decide what their experience is going to be.
0: And, you know, I remember reading a case and I wish I could remember her name. I feel appalled that I don't, but she's a researcher in the U.S. and actually went back to, I think it was Sierra Leone, to get a female circumcision when she was older and wrote an article about how this was the greatest thing she'd done because she had been so sensitive before that sex had been quite uncomfortable. She hadn't enjoyed it. It wasn't something that was beneficial. So having that circumcision done as an adult, by choice, flown back, this was something, was actually beneficial for her. Um, But again. not for me, but if that works for you, that's, that's your choice to be able to undergo it. But yet, even as an adult, it would be illegal for her to do that type of ritualistic ceremony in a North American setting.
1: Yeah, that's true. I believe you're referring to Dr. Fouambe Amadou, who's done some really important work on this area. And, um, you know, not only did she feel that she was sexually enhanced by her general procedures, she also, it was culturally very important to her. She identifies with her ancestral community, the Kono of Sierra Leone. And so, you know, she could say, I'm willing to do this thing because it's meaningful to me. I, I know at least something of what I'm signing up for, and I make this choice. We have a mutual colleague named Richard Schwader, who is at the University of Chicago. And he, he tells the story of a man that he met in Kenya uh, when he was uh, doing some anthropological research there. And uh, he says, you know, he, he's, he's part of what he studies is genital cutting of both boys and girls. And so he says to the man, you know, were you circumcised? Tell me about it. And the man says, yeah, you know, I was 16 at the time. It was part of an initiation rite into adulthood. I learned how to be a man in my culture. I bonded with the other members of my age cohort. And it was very meaningful to me because i have been prepared for the experience. I knew what the symbolic significance of, of it was. And uh, he says, you know, what I don't understand is how you guys do it in North America where you do it to a baby. Because the baby doesn't even understand what's happening. It's just, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just pain for them. It doesn't have any meaning for them. He said, for me, he said, yeah, you know what? It was the most painful thing I've ever experienced in my life. But the pain had meaning. And I also had agency. I like decided to do this because I wanted to be a man according to the prescriptions of my culture. And I, you know, identified with my age cohort and we, you know, my best friends are still the boys that I was circumcised with. And we had some amount of choice in it. And so I, I think there's something to that view that it's not just the sheer matter of choice. It's also the choice allows you to decide what does this mean to you? I mean, suppose that you're in a religious community and you really believe that like circumcision is metaphysically significant. Well, if you choose that, like, Wow, you're choosing a metaphysically significant thing and you're showing that you're willing to accept some discomfort to pledge your allegiance to a group of people and identify with your ancestors, whatever it is. But if you do it to the infant, the infant has no choice and they don't understand why you're doing it. And then it's sort of this post hoc thing where you raise them to be like, by that way, that thing we did to you when you're an infant, you know, you better believe it's good for you because you sure as hell can't undo it.
0: Yeah. And I think the idea, you know, this goes back to, we talked briefly last week about this notion of, oh, but it hurts so much when they're older, we'd never want to do it when they were older. And yet, I think that speaks to the fact, if you didn't want to do it when you were older, then there is no meaning behind the pain. So you're almost acknowledging that there is a complete lack of meaning for it. So the only way to do it is when you're younger. And I think of childbirth, childbirth is painful. I'm just going to come out and say it. I don't know. There are people that try to claim that they were all Zen through it. And I wish I was them because that was not at all my experience, but it had a huge meaning. It's We are often willing to engage with pain. Pain is not the enemy when we can contextualize it and when we can feel that there is a greater purpose to enduring that pain. So I completely see the effects there. It doesn't become about circumcision in and of itself is bad. It's not a moral absolute. It is this choice and this idea that we have something with it. But so all of this then brings us to a bigger issue, which is, I think, this issue of grief. We kind of skated around it here. But there are a lot of men that struggle with the fact that they were circumcised as infants. There are some that seem to not be bothered by it. And I don't know if they pondered it more and thought about the lack of agency that it provided for them if they would feel something deeper. I don't know. I can't say maybe not, but maybe so. But there are definitely men who have been circumcised. They have tried to process it in grief about it. And they are facing a lot of resistance. Can you talk about what happens when someone tries in our culture to open up or process this grief about what happened when they were a baby?
1: Yeah. Um, The first thing to say is that I I often hear people say, uh, you know, I've never heard a man complain. And so they assume that if there are some men who are grieving, it's like two men somewhere who are especially sensitive. Like most people just have no sense of what the scale is of this grief. So I want to speak to that for a second. Um, The first thing is when somebody says, I've never heard a man complain about being circumcised, you have to first ask yourself, why would they tell you? Like, who are you? Do you think that they're going to come talk to you about a very private issue where they're admitting something extremely vulnerable, where they maybe are saying that they feel sexually diminished in some way? I mean, in in a patriarchal culture, like one in which we live, uh, there's this masculinizing norm that men are supposed to be tough and strong, not admit weakness and not cry, and they have to be sexually dominant and so forth. So if you get to a point where a man actually feels like, wow, I feel sexually diminished and I feel resentful that something was done to my penis, who's he going to tell? Very often, they're not not going to write a letter to the local newspaper. They're not going to necessarily tear their family. They might not want to confront their parents because they're afraid it's going to ruin their relationship with their parents, which happens sometimes. They're afraid to bring up their sexual partner because, you know, they want to perform for their sexual partner. They don't want their sexual partner to feel that they're damaged in some way. And so you have to you have to first realize that it's really hard to talk about Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, men talk about it. They get, I mean, since the invention of the internet has really helped with this because they can go to forums and so forth and talk in a semi-anonymous way and find each other online. And that's been healing for some men to have that opportunity. But basically there's barriers to reporting. So you shouldn't take the apparent lack of public complaining as evidence that there isn't a complaint somewhere but nevertheless there's lots of evidence that men are complaining so there's some nationally representative surveys in the united states that suggest at least 10 percent of men wish that they hadn't been circumcised and if you realize that there's like more than a million circumcisions done every year uh, and the size of the united states population that means that there's you know millions several millions of men who are resentful about having been circumcised it's not like a handful it's millions the other thing is that there's degrees of resentment so i've done some research into this because I take the strongest evidence of resentment to be men who attempt something called foreskin restoration. Now that's kind of a misnomer because you can't restore the foreskin, the foreskin's gone. What you can sometimes do if you have enough remaining shaft skin is you can attach weights and tapes and other devices that slowly, like over the course of months or even years, slowly stretch the tissue forward to create a pseudo use. So you at least have the feeling that you're head is covered. And many men it's like the glands has these weird numb sensations and so forth because it's been exposed and rubbing against clothing and they just want it to be covered at least. Mm -hmm. And so they have this kind of pseudo prep use. So that's like, if you're willing to spend years trying to undo your circumcision in a painful thing where you have to wear a contraption under your pants, like every day, you're like the height of resentful. And so I tried to get some estimates about how many people are doing that. I contacted a, a sales company and asked if they could share with me their sales records for the, a certain number of years. And we came up with es- uh, an estimate that it's like more than 500,000 men just with that one company, just in the English speaking world are currently attempting foreskin restoration. So again, this is not like a dozen really weird people in a fringe thing somewhere. This is like a lot of men, like some man, you know, may have some contraption and, under his clothes and is trying to restore a foreskin and is really upset about what happened, but he's not talking to you about it it's not something that's very comfortable. So that's yeah. people need to just get that impression mind. Okay, so then what's going on with grief? I mean, this is the thing that's really difficult is that if you grew up in a culture that practices female genital cutting and you come to the, to a Western country and you start to feel like, wow, I'm not okay that that happened to me. The one advantage of this is that people will really take your feelings seriously. They'll say, yeah, you know, we're really upset about what happened to you too. And like, here's some resources to help you. And that's what should happen. I mean, if somebody says, I feel upset that somebody cut my genitals when I was a kid. You should really, really be sensitive to their experience and try to take their feelings seriously and give them some resources. But the problem is that because the very same cultures, uh, these Western cultures, you know, are, are comfortable with male circumcision. When a man says, I feel really upset what happens, even to their therapist, sometimes they're kind of laughed out of the room. I mean, I've had some very difficult conversations with men who said, I went to see a therapist specifically about this because it's been haunting me for years and it's like, it's really troubling to me. And, I said, you know, I feel really upset about my circumcision. And the person said, yeah, it's not the circumcision. It's something, you know, you've got some other mental problem that's causing the problem. Why, how could circumcision even be a problem? And it's like, whoa, you have somebody who's so culturally brainwashed that they can't even fathom why an involuntary genital surgery would be something a person might be upset about. It's like, you have to be pretty far off, like common moral intuitions to, to actually not even be able to conceive that a person could be legitimately concerned about having had part of their penis removed it's like whoa what do you not understand about what a circumcision is and so i think one thing that happens for a lot of men is that they have the grief and then they try i mean against all these odds i talked about earlier to talk to somebody about it and then they don't they aren't taken seriously or it's implied that there's you know they have a screw loose or something like that and they need to go get their head checked out because it obviously couldn't be a legitimate grounds for a complaint and so i think there's this like double layer of grief when, when you also feel like you're kind of being gaslit about your own grief.
0: These people should not be therapists. I'm just going to throw that out there that if your job is to support people's mental health and you can't take what they're coming to you with seriously, (laughs) you're in the wrong profession just right then and there. But so the question then becomes, I mean, yes, you're right. Obviously, bringing it up to your next door neighbor is probably not going to be how this conversation happens. But then how, how does it become more common to bring this up? Because we see it, you know, I think about analogies with corporal punishment with kids. For a long time, it was if you complained that your parents spanked you, hit you, whatever it was, oh, suck it up. You know, there's still even a backlash to some of that now of saying, oh, we need more of it to make kids better. But At least we've opened up the discussion by having a greater awareness of the effects of corporal punishment, of the lack of it being necessary in any cases, the rights violation. It's a child's body that we're violating there. We're starting to see people at least feeling a bit more comfortable in open realms to talk about it. I see people who've had birth trauma feeling more and more empowered to speak about their experience publicly in order to bring more awareness to it how do we get to that same stage with circumcision because the reaction and i know a lot of it comes from just having enough people being open to the ridicule and everything just as they were people talking about birth trauma at first were ridiculed people talking about you know being spanked were ridiculed but what is needed at a cultural level and to really help facilitate this shift towards acceptance of, of those who are struggling with what happened to them.
1: Yeah. I think this ties into what you were saying earlier about uh, parental guilt, because I'm realizing I didn't fully answer that question. I think um, one, one, one difficulty that people have about bringing this up is that they're going to have problems within their family. And I should say, this also happens with female circumcision where, you know, it's not actually, you know, if you come in an immigrant community, it's not always easy to find somebody to talk to because you may be talking to other family members who don't don't necessarily want to hear what you said uh, yeah. about being resentful. So it's not easy for anyone, but you can create these conflicts with parents. And I think it's because uh, a lot of parents, if they fully come around to your view, they, they do feel this devastating guilt about what happened. And I think partly how that can be a little bit diffused is that parents should, unless they're completely negligent and reckless about this, there's some amount of forgiveness that's warranted because at least in the United States, it's a cultural norm. And medical authorities like the American Academy of Pediatrics say nice stuff about circumcision. And doctors tend to sort of imply that it's probably a good thing to do. And sometimes there's high pressure tactics placed on uh, parents to to accept a circumcision, even if they haven't, haven't thought about it. And also not everybody spends all their days long reading the medical literature and forming critical judgments about circumcision. I mean, we can't become experts in everything. So a lot of parents, I mean, a normal thing to do in a culture is you look around and you say, well, I don't know what do most people do. Like uh, presumably, if if this were a horrible thing, it wouldn't be common, and so it's common. So I assume it's okay. Well, that's actually a pretty reasonable inference. If you're not an expert on a topic, you know, I just as an analogy here, not to get another complicated thing in, but you know, I I struggled with eating meat for a long time because I was convinced of the arguments in my like abstractly, but then I looked around my culture and I was like, I don't know, everybody's doing this, so, I mean. It couldn't be that bad if it's totally normal. But then, you know, you learn about how meat eating gets normalized and factory farming and blah, blah, blah. And they think, well, even though it's common, it's probably still bad. So, you know, eventually I stopped eating meat. I think circumcision is like that. It it plays on our psychology where because it's so common, it's literally just very hard emotionally for us to think it could be bad because if it were bad, why would it be supported by, you know, certain authorities and why would it be so widespread in the culture? So partly you have to learn about stuff like, oh, it's not widespread in other cultures. Oh, like European doctors think that American doctors are just totally off their rockers with respect to this topic. Then you start to get a, a you, you get a, a perspective shift and then you sort of like, you can make an informed decision. But I think a lot of parents aren't in a position to make an informed decision. And in a way they're doing kind of they're they're making a, a more or less reasonable inference about what probably is the best thing to do based on limited information. So I think some children when they're trying to when they grow up and they're talk, thinking about how can I talk about this with my parents and and form a conversation they have to try to some extent to be understanding about the limited information that their parents had. Now on the other hand a lot of parents act very defensively and I I've I've heard many men who were the parents are like get over it you know suck it up it's no big deal that's just normal in our family. And, and that's, that's very, you know, that's just not good parenting. I don't know. That's, that's really messed up. Oh, I'm with but you if, the parents, if, if the parent says, I'm, um, you know, listen, I didn't know about any of this stuff and wow, I'm, I've got a shock to my system and I'm having going through all sorts of guilt here. And I, you know, I'm just like horrified that I didn't even know this was controversial, you know, you have to have some forgiveness and some grace for the parents as well, because parents are trying to do their best for their children for the most Mm -hmm. part. And the, the, the cards are stacked against good decision making in the United States because it's a cultural habit and to some extent in Canada as well.
0: Yeah, it's I think that defensiveness you speak about is a big piece because, you know, like I said, I see it even earlier, just before a child has even said anything about it, it comes up in conversation. And how dare you judge my parenting? And that is not, you know, somewhere. And I I mean, I could go into ages. I think a lot of that stems from the fact that somehow, as we've reduced support for families, we've put the burden of the idea of the good child solely on the parent. So it's, if you are a good parent, your child will be X, Y, Z, and we're not going to offer you any help to navigate that at all. So the pressures on parents are actually quite intense in our culture as we think about it. But Mm -hmm. It is that defensiveness that I can see just causing so many problems as it comes through, because if you do try to open up vulnerably, that's going to be hard. I think an added layer here is that we also live in a culture where anything sexual is something we don't talk about. Sexual discussions are very hard. Families, you know, they don't want schools talking about sex. Families don't talk about sex. We don't, you know, it's a push to even get people to use actual proper terminology for sexual organs amongst kids? And does that play a role? Would it do you think it would be easier if we had these discussions going earlier that because I feel like boys at 13, 14, maybe when they first start noticing if something's different or feels different based on their development, it might be easier to approach a parent at that age than hitting 20, 25. It's been this kind of elephant in the room for so long. How do yeah. you then approach it? Like, is it is this sexuality kind of intertwined with this
1: definitely i i I think you're right that partly this is embedded in a deeper issue with the inability to talk about sex in our culture i mean i grew up in a subculture where talking about sex was not a common thing and in a a religious community and generally in the united states there's a lot of shame around sex and discomfort and you know jokes and indirect kind of speech, but people have a hard time just talking frankly about sex. And I have friends like in the Netherlands and they're like, yeah, we just talked about sex. I don't know. And then we got information and sex education, we can make decisions. Um, But in the United States, there's this weird relationship towards sex where we just don't talk about it very productively and openly and honestly anyway. And so, given that this concerns a sexual organ, I think that it creates an added layer of difficulty in just having a frank conversation about things and getting the conversation started. So, I think you're right about that. That there's, there's um, this is embedded in in a bunch of aspects of North American culture that make it a hard conversation to have.
0: Yeah, and I think makes the grief harder to to process too, because again, the layers are you've got to overcome multiple layers to reach a stage where. You, you can, can bring actually, else. exactly, and feel okay and, and risk what you've described as complete resistance to your grief surrounding it and knowing.
1: Another la- layer that I should have said before is they has to overcome is the layers within your own head. So imagine that you start to have an inkling that maybe you're not so happy about what happened. Well, one thing you might do is just press those feelings down. Like, well, I, oof, I do not even want to confront that. So you have to realize that when somebody comes to you and says, I feel upset about being circumcised, they probably spent years battling with themselves to finally get to the point where they can even admit to themselves that they feel upset and then all the other layers of like coming to actually talk about this openly with another person i mean that's it's like that that's the end of a very long struggle usually it's not like people just wake up one day and say yeah i'm upset about being circumcised you know often people have been just spending months and years agonizing over this okay. before they before they feel that they found anybody it's safe enough that they can share that they feel diminished in this way
0: yeah Oh my goodness. Thank you. You know, one of the things you brought up that I is in my head and I'm going to have to ponder more and, and think about more is this issue of meaning. Cause I had never linked the, obviously the choice, but of course meaning is intertwined with choice because we choose things that have meaning for us and we choose not to do things that don't have meaning for us um, Mm -hmm. without good reason. And that is a, a layer that I, I feel might speak to people, but I'm not sure where yet. It's kind of percolating in my head here as we go. But I want to thank you so much. I know I've I've kept you very long on two weeks in a row now, and uh, I still at some point want to talk more about the entire Africa trials as we started last week yeah. and everything going on there. But um, I, I I can't thank you enough for all of this discussion and all of your work in the field, which is far more intensive than what we see around and is much needed here from the framework in which you write. So are there any closing thoughts for anyone before we close?
1: Thank you for having me on. Thank you for your good questions. I think we have covered a lot of good stuff. There's always many more avenues to this uh, particular topic because it's, you know, it's so taboo and it touches on so many sensitivities. So there's more we could say, but yeah, I think this has been a great conversation and I really appreciate your, your thoughtful perspective on this.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week, and hopefully last week as well. Although it may seem like it's hard to find, there are resources for families who are looking to keep their child intact, and these can be necessary given the dearth of information medical professionals may have. Please check out the show notes for some of these resources. Now join me next week as we shift gears to talk about the misunderstood and ignored between years with our children those times between young childhood and adolescence that no one seems to talk about. Luckily for us, I got to sit down with Sarah Ockwell-Smith, a brilliant parenting guru, author, and friend, to talk about her new book, Between. It's a must-listen for those of us in this delicate stage. In the meantime, stay safe and happy parenting.